Sound Insight is sponsored by Burien Toyota and Burien Chevrolet, Catholic family-owned dealerships for over 30 years. Information about new and pre-owned cars and the service center is available at BurienToyota.com and BurienChevrolet.com. Find new roads. I want to thank Tom and Sound Insight for all he has done for the pro-life community. Listening has given me the gift to hear the Spirit speaking through Tom. Tom really gives you the insight on a practical level, on a daily basis, to be able to speak it to other people. Your show is unique. It presents teachings of the Catholic Church with an enthusiasm and yet also gives ways of living that out day by day. Sound insight, Holy Spirit-driven teaching that gets people excited about their faith and living this life in abundance. Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Kern. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. This is part two of our book club, our Sacred Heart Radio book club called, it's on the book called God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades, written by Rodney Stark and published by Harper One Press. Um, today I'm with uh, Father uh, Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. We are here for part two. Are you excited, Fathers? Oh, yes. I am. Ready to go crusading? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. It's, it is our Lent. It is our Lent. I, I, I'm actually not going to give us any time to talk about our Lents. Okay. Because, uh, there's just no way we're going to, well, like I said, we're going to face the same thing that we faced last week, which was the challenge of getting through a lot of content, though some of the themes I think are going to um, reappear. Sure. But we'll get into that in just a minute on Sound Insight. Back in a second. Today's sponsor is the Associated Catholic Cemeteries of the Seattle Archdiocese. The Archdiocese of Seattle is fortunate to have four Catholic cemeteries in the Puget Sound area. Calvary in Seattle, Holyrood in Shoreline, Gethsemane in Federal Way, and St. Patrick in Kent. Burial in the consecrated ground of the Catholic Cemetery is a sign of baptismal commitment. For more information, please contact them at 888-784-8683 or online at mycatholiccemetery.org. Western Washington Coalition for Life has a mission to end abortion in Washington State through peaceful and prayerful means by being the hands and feet of Christ to everyone entering an abortion facility. WWCFL knows where there is life, there is hope. Engage at WWCFL.org or on Facebook at Western Washington Coalition for Life. Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer. This is from 2 Timothy 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power and love and self-control. So do not be ashamed of your testimony to our Lord, nor of me, a prisoner, for his sake. But bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. Gracious God, we do ask you to bless this day and this show as we talk about this book of the Crusades. And again, just bless those who are listening during this season of Lent when we are challenged to grow in virtue and to offer our sacrifice and sufferings to you for those we love. And we ask these prayers through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Nagel. All right, so for folks, um, if you haven't listened to it, we do encourage you to go back and listen to the program that you'll you'll find it still on um, the podcast version of our website. We, you go to mycatholicfaith.org, you can look up the God's Battalions Part 1, which is that book club edition of the program. 
Um, but uh, for those who haven't heard, um, every once about once a month, or it's been a while, but uh, every now and again, we'll take a book and, and dissect it together and talk about it together. And um, the Good Fathers and and myself talked about uh, and I talked about this book last week. Um, for those who are not um, aware, why don't uh, Father Nagel, you're a resident historian. Why don't you give us a, a brief overview of what this book, God's Battalions, is about, and then we'll dive into the second part of the book. It's, it, this subtitle is the, the Case for the Crusades. So in some sense, this is a, a, a book with an argument. Um, it has a thesis, which is that the, the Crusades have been misinterpreted um, by those who are opposed to Christianity, etc. And so uh, Stark begins, I would say the first half-ish of the book, talking about some of those uh, assumptions or charges or assertions and then pushing back. And just in terms of, uh, again, who, who started this? Uh, to what extent were these crusades, um, you know, are these Christians, uh, is it the Christian's fault? Is it not? Um, the nature of the Muslim um presence or interaction with Christianity, all, all sorts of things. Um, and, and basically saying that so many of these uh, assumptions and myths that we have about the Crusades are not really true in terms of historical fact, um, that it's much more of a situation of the Crusaders aren't bad and the Muslim people good. It's uh, simply human beings working themselves out and acting um, as they do, sometimes good and sometimes bad. But the second half of the book is is about, a short, it's a short history of um, the first six crusades and and he, and he limits himself to the crusades that really what we think of crusades of going to the holy land and um, fighting and holding and, and living there as opposed to some of the um, events that get called crusades whether it's the taking back of spain from the moors or whether it's fighting heretics in france or whether it's going against the uh, pagans in the baltic regions again sometimes these are called crusades and had some similarities to them but really it's just a short a short history of the crusades in the second half of the book so father i'll ask you first father lewis um in the focusing on the second half of the book uh, were there any surprises to you things that um that were brought up about the Crusades themselves or about some of the characters and things like that? Were there any sort of big, chunky surprises? Uh, two immediately come to mind. One is um, the role of, um, of Constantinople and the, um, the Eastern Empire uh, Emperor and just how frequently there would be, you know, the court intrigue or whatever that would backstab the efforts of the Crusaders to the point that they would rather make alliances with the, the Muslim Turks than they would with their own Christian brothers and sisters. And, and, and that kept happening. And, um, and the fallout of that, I didn't, I didn't realize that that was a, a constant factor, um, as the, as the various crusades over those course of two and a half centuries, uh, unfolded. And then the other one, I, I was, uh, uh, largely ignorant of as well of, uh, the establishment of what he calls the crusader kingdoms, where it wasn't just they went, defeated the Muslims in Jerusalem, liberated it, and went home. But, um, you know, for the ongoing uh, presence for the protection of pilgrims and the Christians living there, actually established these, uh, these uh, uh, well, the crusader kingdoms and kind of the, um, the relationships between all that. So that aspect also, um, I, I was not aware of that as well. So those two are, are big chunks that, um, that really stood out to me in the second half of this book. Father Nagel, I'm not expecting that there was probably a lot of new for you, but were there any surprises? Um, 
I, I thought, I, again, I, I think the Byzantine presence over there, I think we mentioned this last time, that, that also was interesting to me, uh, the, the role and, and, and really the negative role. Um, again, it's all self-interest here. So it, in some ways, it's, I don't know if it's fair to say the Byzantines stabbed us in the back, uh, you know, the Western Christians back, et cetera. Everybody was looking out for, you know, their own interests in some, in some ways here. There's a, there is a, uh, certainly a devotional and faith element um, in all aspects, both the Eastern Christians, Latin Christians, and the Muslims. Again, I, I wouldn't denigrate the the true devotion in this interacting in, in all these events. But I, I, to be reminded or sometimes even you taught about some of the details about the Byzantine uh, interaction was interesting. Another thing that just struck me is just how much of a failure these crusades really were. That other than the first crusade, that somehow, divine intervention or some other reason, they this this group of knights and soldiers with lots of other hangers-on, they actually conquered this region. Um, again, seemingly against odds, militarily speaking, but again, there's uh, there's divisions among the Muslim states, et cetera, at the time that allowed them to do that. Then ever after, all the other crusades were failures. Um, you could might you might see the third crusade had some some positive things to it but but none of them really reached the success of the first crusade and yet to think of for two centuries these pilgrimages and by the way the word crusade is a later word if it's, the people at the time would not have considered themselves crusaders they would not call this a crusade that's a later word they were just being pilgrims they were talking about the pilgrimages and so just the just the vast wealth and energy and lives at stake for 200 years, doing what was essentially a repetition of failure. Uh, it, I think it's, it speaks to just the depth of the uh, emotional religious conviction here, along with the usual human greed and sin and everything else. But to keep on going and failing, I, I, again, I think it was an interesting reminder to me of just that nature of the Crusades. So I would say um, I'm gonna I'll kind of tie together similar themes that were surprising to me. The first was um, where the Crusades ended up, like having their point of attack or their 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 ending point. So to have Crusades against Egypt, I just I, I wouldn't have thought of that, and that's a lack of historical knowledge from my standpoint. I didn't realize that. You know their strategy was we'll eventually get around to fortify Jerusalem, but we've got to go through Alexandria. You know that's going to be our 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 focus uh, in the third and fourth Crusades. Um, and oh no, sorry, uh, was it the fourth Crusade that ended up in Constantinople? Yes, yeah, the fourth one. So um, so going against Egypt and then going against Constantinople. <laughs> let's sack Constantinople. <laughs> They're not playing playing nicely here. Great, we'll just take take over this city. And um, that was a surprise to me. Uh, I, I had a, a more generalist understanding of the Crusades as really being focused on Jerusalem. So then the establishment of those fortified cities on the coast, um, the, the Crusader kingdoms, um, that, was, that was new. So I learned a lot of new, but the, the things that were really surprising to me was that. And the second was bad actors. <laughs> Boy, the, the Byzantines, they just did not come across as 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 doing a lot of good really in in the entirety of all of these um in all of these crusades they did not 
show up very in a, in a very um, worthy light at all. Um, and then the second was the uh, the Muslims and how you know not only are they not good, but boy, they were incredibly you know violent, bloody, um, and and went against even the rudimentary principles of warfare where you know you you conquered them you let them go and then you, or you behead them all and and hang their heads off of the you know circle the city with the heads right this kind of activity wow so i found that surprising as well and um what i'd say is this and i want to ask you father nagel this that one of the things that i want to restate about my appreciation for rodney stark is his ability to take all of the inherited literature, including the inherited, like leading um, ways of interpreting what had happened and who were the good actors and the bad actors, and his ability to stand apart from it, critically examine it, get back to the original sources, and be able to tease out something that is likely a more objective reading of things. Um, regarding many elements of the Crusades that make the Catholic Church look like the bad actors, I, I do think uh, I think Rodney Stark does a good job here um, in terms of questioning the perceived perceptions because I think historians, just like journalists and others, they, we get lazy. Um, we just assume this is the way it is because we've always heard this is the way it is, and so we, you know, we're just going to go with that and just make these. Um, we don't really even recognize the fact that that's what we're doing. So he's going back to square one and saying, okay, let's relook at some of these, um, some of this data here. And so interesting things come out. And so I do think he does a good job with that. Um, I, I think that, you know, that the whole idea of the, you mentioned the Byzantines, I, I have a little, and, and the good actors and the bad actors, I have a little different perspective there in, ten, in terms of, I, if you want to read the Crusades in this book in context of the whole entirety of history, military history of the Middle Ages, if you want to say year 1000 to 1500 or something, I think what I read in this book in terms of the actions and, and, and what, how people acted in, in, in all of the events and the massacres or the battles, I think it's all pretty similar um, in terms of, you know, they they didn't mention, for instance, that Richard Lionhearted he he massacred the the Saracens, the the Muslim uh, people who had surrendered at Acre, and uh, they didn't get enough of the something happened. I forget the details where they didn't provide the uh, the uh, ransom, or there was some attempt to escape or something. But it, it was clear that these people were innocent. He killed a couple thousand people just because. And so again, I think it was just it's warriors doing what they do, and sometimes. Some of their good, you know, some of the devotion comes in, and sometimes their, their theories of honor, of chivalry, or Muslim military virtue shines forth, and oftentimes it doesn't. And so, for me, even the Byzantines, um, it was interesting. But I think, what, if if I was writing from their perspective, I would be thinking, "Hey, both you guys, the Western Christians and the Muslims, you're both our enemies. You're both you know, either you're heretics or you're infidels." But we are the one true Roman Empire, and we're trying to survive here because we are the, the center of civilization. And so you guys are threats to us, and we're trying to work you off against each other, but we're trying to survive here because it's really important that our civilization survive and, my, and our church survives. So again, from a historian perspective, I think you could, you could look at this from a different angle from the Byzantines. I do think that it's, 
the perception now is that, well, the Byzantines are pretty good and the Muslims are pretty good, but the Catholics, the Crusaders are bad. I don't think that's true. But I do think um, it's, it's hard to find that the really good guys here. And if you want to say the saints, there are a few, but I, again, that's a historian of me. I'm, I'm skeptical and I'm, I think of human nature being pretty universal. Sure. Uh, Father Lewis, you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, I was thinking about also uh, the Byzantines. Um, you know, there could be a, a book written, a case for the Byzantine side of things, I suppose, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the resident historian, but I mean, bad blood between Byzant uh, Byzantium or Constantinople and Rome, I mean, that even goes back a thousand years before this, you know, potentially as there's divisions in the old Roman Empire and Rome is in decay, but Constantine Constantinople's on the rise and and these kind of things. So there's already kind of a wedge growing. And does it just, uh, is it kind of an inevitable turn of events that there's going to be just outright war and bloodshed between the East and the West on the Christian side because of a backlog of a thousand years of, of blood boiling, you know, to a slow rolling boil. And then it you know, comes to a head and, um, you know, they could have a whole series, I'm sure of historical texts just on, on that background. Well, well, I would say that one of the books that, or series of books that Stark uses is uh, Sir Stephen Runciman's um, three-volume history of the Crusades, which is the historic, historical work uh, up until late middle of the late 20th century. In English, the history of the Crusades is Runciman's book. He is very much pro-Byzantine. In fact, he became an Eastern Orthodox person. So I think some of the perceived, uh, these perceived uh, allegations and, and viewpoints that Stark's working against is coming from a Byzantine perspective from Runciman. So I, I, when I say that there's a perspective that can be said, I'm not saying it's hidden or it's a myth. It, it's, it's the accepted thing. I'm just saying that there, there, is, there is data to support that, maybe not as strong as the as Runciman said, but it's not like they don't have a voice either in historiography. They have a strong one from Runciman. Well, and if there's one part where Rodney Stark shows a, a little bit of um, maybe a, a more Protestant framing of Catholic history is sort of post-Constantine, right? And this right, idea right, that right. the church of the, the corrupt were in power. The church of power, yeah. The church of power versus the church of the, the what is it called? The holy ones or the uh, people? Church of piety, I think. Church yeah. of piety? Yeah. 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 And... And as if it's like, oh, where, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to Church of Power or down the street. And I, <laughs> right. oh, really? I go to St. Dismas of the Pious over here. And <laughs> and, and it's like, boy, it, 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 I felt it like it was a little bit forced. Yeah. The, the categories there are a little forced. Right. And, and, and oversimplified. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe overstated, right? You know, was it 75% or more of the, of the clergy and uh, the bishops and cardinals were all somehow part of this corrupt system rather than having any sort of vocation from God. And I was thinking to myself, really? And they were, they produced these ecumenical councils and this amazing theology. <laughs> these great Come on now, really? So but you could see also that if you, he didn't label them, but you could also say the same thing about the, the corruption in terms of the Byzantine church or the Muslim religion is you, it's just reading from this book. It's obviously there's, um, there's power, corruption, and piety, all over the place. Uh, it's not just in the Catholic Church that you could make this division. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right, we're up against our break. When we come back, we're going to dive into the, the chapters, the flow of beginning with the Crusader kingdoms. Now that there's been a, a bloody victory and the first crusade has led to the, the, well, the Catholics have retaken Jerusalem 
And so they immediately start fortifying everything with thousands of knights and... Well, no, wait a minute. We'll have to actually get the real story in just a minute on Sound Insight. Are you helping to coordinate or promote a faith-filled event for a nonprofit ministry or organization in the Pacific Northwest? Let Sacred Heart Radio help you spread the word. Event promotion on Sacred Heart Radio is a great way to reach thousands of Catholics in the Northwest with information about local upcoming events. If you are interested in highlighting your event on Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran, call Sacred Heart Radio at 800-949-1050 or email info at sacredheartradio.org. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. We're talking about the book, God's Battalions. This is part two of the Sacred Heart Radio Book Club edition of the program, talking about God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades by Rodney Stark. I'm joined by Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. And in part two, we are going to do our best to cover the second half of the book, which begins with the Crusader Kingdoms. And so uh, the first crusade has been successful. And boy, did you realize how much planning and money and thought has to go into um, actually uh, uh, performing and and, uh, and then being successful in a, in a battle, in, in a war. Mm-hmm. Um, really very striking. And, and that shows up with what happens here in the Crusader Kingdoms. So, Father Nagel, do you want to give us again, Using we're going to lean on you a little bit again, um, what are these Crusader Kingdoms? Well, and how, does, how do they emerge in relationship to the aftermath of the First Crusade? Well, on the way down, what we would call um, through Turkey and Syria, Lebanon, into what today is Israel, there's four kingdoms. There is the county of Edessa, the principality, so the prince of Antioch, the count of Tripoli, and then the king of Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem had some sort of vague uh, superiority um, over the others, but they were all pretty independent. And I think the interesting thing about these kingdoms is, first off, there's a big. There's a lot of talk here about whether these are colonies of Europe or not, because colonization is a kind of one of the buzzwords these days. And they're not really colonies; they're independent structures. Uh, they they can't get people to settle from Europe, and so the, it's the Crusaders are always a small minority in these kingdoms. And so the majority of these people are Muslims. And by the way, there was no attempt to convert or force conversion upon the Muslims. So it's not like this is a. Uh, you know, there's this forcing their consciences and falsely uh, forcing them to adopt a religion they didn't want. It was very similar, actually, to the way the Arab armies worked in North Africa and Spain. They were a small minority that were sitting on top of a, of a culture and a population that was different from theirs. And so this meant that there was a, there was a garrison mentality there that it was never fully pacified, so to speak, um, so you had these little garrisons and you know, of castles throughout these regions uh, that were manned by these Europeans and their descendants. But again, most of the society just went on the way it always had. Um, and the, the languages didn't change other than among the elites. So uh, again, this was something that was just kind of an interesting set of circumstances. And they go native. The, the crusaders, uh, you go, quote unquote, go native fairly quickly where they become not no longer Frenchmen or English or German or anything like that. They become members of this society and they, they think like Easterners and, and not through religion, but not in those terms, but um, they become their own distinct society. 
So I, I think it's an interesting, it's only, it only lasts for a couple centuries, but it's an interesting uh, development there. When he brings that up, like towards the very end of those Crusader kingdoms, and, and this is last, these kingdoms, which just seem like such a small thing, last longer than the age of the United States. Yeah. Which is like, whoa, yeah, wait a minute. Hey. Yeah, that's yeah. good to know. <laughs> um, and then uh, I also was struck by that, that sense of the, um, they, they went native, that they started to identify themselves as Easterners here. Uh, you know, I think of um, go back 700 years, you get St. Jerome. But, you know, coming ahead, these these folks, you can't just hop on a plane. No. Right? Or you don't just hop on, oh, well, when's the next ship? There's a, There must be a cruise liner that's going to be leaving soon and will get us home in a couple of weeks. No, that that's not a thing. Hmm. And so you have that sense of the kind of that Benedict option, right? That network of, of families that, that say we're staying and we're going to stay rooted. Uh, Father Lewis. Um, and those who stayed and went native, you know, he... Stark mentions throughout the book, you know, different historical records will say that there was 100,000 troops or whatever the case, and he'll say probably the truth is somewhere around this and that. And just the, the it was shocking to me how many of those folks actually made it in the first place without dying of other kind of, kinds of violence along the way or desertion or disease or whatever. Um, and, then, and then those who actually stayed were just a, a radically small minority, and the rest went back home to, to Europe. And so, you know, if we think about why did the other crusades fail? Why didn't the first one succeed? Well, these were like, I mean, we call them kingdoms. The book calls them kingdoms and counties and principalities and so on. I mean, I got the impression that they were little better than forts. Forts uh, in a castle that, that kind of kept the peace for the immediate area and then the pilgrims going through their territory. But, um, I mean, if they were able to do anything in terms of growing infrastructure or something like that and make these like long-lasting kingdoms, you know, I don't know how. I don't get the impression that they were able to do much of that at all. And then this uh, this accusation that these were colonies of Europe. I mean, when you read the book, it's it's laughable if you think about what is the purpose of a colony to extract the resources and wealth of that colony and bring it back to the to the homeland. Well, the, the exact opposite was true. Europe kept pumping more and more troops, more and more resources to try to keep these things alive. They were sapping Europe of its wealth. It was a reverse colonization. And uh, I mean, given all of that, it's just, uh, it's, I got the impression that it's just kind of, it's a miracle in and of itself that they last as long as they did, if they're just kind of glorified forts. And, you know, you mentioned before the break, Tom, you know, they were left with, they were supplied with thousands of knights. <laughs> no, they weren't. They didn't even have thousands of knights. Thousands of knights would have been like, they're like the army rangers or the Navy SEALs of their time, right? They're the top of the top. And therefore they were, you know, they were lifelong trained and all this, but they, you, know, you didn't have that many, um, and then a lot of them went back to to Europe. And so, you know, for every one Navy SEAL, you had you know, I don't know, a hundred grunts or something like this. And and uh, he just didn't have the manpower to really be effective. It's kind of miraculous to me that they last as long as they did, given all that was against them. I think when we like in our imaginations, I should speak personally. In my imagination, the idea is okay. The Crusades came in, they took back Jerusalem, and now they have troops everywhere, and they're manning the walls and and you know they're a secure fortress and and now all of a sudden the pilgrims are safely able to come again and they're rebuilding this and that and then they hear no there's just like a few hundred a few <laughs> hundred knights in jerusalem trying to hold down the whole city and oh by the way they couldn't both hold down the city defend it and be able to go to the coastland and either resupply or get the safe passage for pilgrims coming and going and you think man really 
and this the basically the reason why they're able to to survive is the lack of organization and unity among the Muslims, right. yeah. which would be solved uh, fifty years later. But um, in the time, it's just a fascinating thing that it was basically held by such a small unit of um, of knights, especially then in terms of the military orders. I think you should talk about those too. They, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's my next point okay. is, and this gave rise to two orders of knights. Yeah. Um, okay, what, I'm going to give Father Lewis, the, Father Lewis, okay. which one do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the Knights Templar or do you want, Templar, or do you want to talk about the Knights Hospitalitaires? <laughs> I'll choose Knights Templar. It's easier to say. Yeah. <laughs> I could have said the Knights of Malta. Oh, the Knights of Malta for the Hospitalitaires, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And, and I came, he brings it up, Stark brings up later in the book that, you know, an argument could be made or there was arguments raised like, are these truly religious orders given the reason for their foundation that they're like a religious order, but their charism is to be knights and to engage in battle to defend the Christians. And you know, I can imagine the Franciscans and the Dominicans be like, what? <laughs> the Cistercians like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Speaking of which, the Knights Templar have their origin, at least in part, from the most powerful man in Europe. I love that yeah. line. I was just I felt so proud. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Who's the most powerful man in Europe? St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Yes. Saint, I call him St. Bernard. No. St. <laughs> Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, so... And just talked about his ability. Oh, well, go ahead. I, I'm. This is your turn. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Saint Saint Bernard. Uh, Saint Bernard um, uh, of Clairvaux, the famous. You know, uh, that I, I think he's recognized as like the the last of the fathers of the church and a doctor of the church. And then we get into a new era. But but the eloquence of his preaching, the organization of his thought, and just kind of the force of his personality um, led him to be able to sway the opinions of of ruling monarchs and popes themselves and. And, um, you know, if, if you wanted to try to, you know, organize crusade, you, you, uh, won him over and then his, in, he was the chief influencer of his time, right. Without TikTok or YouTube or those things. And, uh, but by the force of that and, and, um, and, and I, I want to pause on yeah. this just for a minute, father, and, and get your insight too, father Nagel. Why would Rodney Stark say that, uh, a monk who, uh, you know, a monk who is cloistered and who, is um, taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience is the most powerful man in Europe. How can that be, Father Nagel? Well, he was not the founder, but he was really, in, in, in essence, the founder of the Cistercian order in the 12th century. And so when Father Lewis says, you know, these Franciscan Dominicans would say, wow, what are you talking about? These are really, he would, they, those orders were all in for these military orders. In fact, it was Bernard of Clairvaux who wrote in praise of the new chivalry in 1128 that was pushing for the Templars. He's saying, this is this is a wonderful idea. This is exactly what we should be doing. And so why he is the most powerful uh, man in Europe is that he is the, the heart and soul and driving force of this Cistercian expansion and explosion in Western Europe during this time. So I think we have to recognize that there was this huge wave of new Cistercian monasteries everywhere. They were the cutting edge. The Benedictines were kind of old and tired. These are the guys going back to, we would call them Trappists today. Trappists are descended from these, that they were poor, they were reformed, they were holy in that sense of, we are like, again, spiritual soldiers going out into the wilderness. We're going to build these poor little monasteries that eventually become big. But they're a whole new a new idea in the church. And so they... And it's also a military-like organization of hierarchy. It's the first real religious order in the sense that there's 
there's unity of command and there's obedience between monasteries. Benedictine monasteries are individual and autonomous. Cistercians always end up going back to Citeaux and, and Clairvaux. These, you, the daughter monasteries founded by from a monastery, they have to report back to the bishop of their founding. So again, there's a whole, there's this, this whole web of these new powerful monasteries and Bernard is the leader of them all. He's the head of it all. So he is in charge of and able to access all the wealth and the spiritual and social power of this new Cistercian movement. So he's, he has more moral authority than the Pope or the bishops or the kings because he's, he's the head of the cutting edge of Catholic Church. Well, and I just think that that speaks a lot to today, right? Fathers, do not doubt the power uh, that you have in your powerlessness as a you know a poor, simple priest, if not a poor priest, of vowing poverty. Um, that there is the the attractive influence of holiness and the power of eloquence, uh, you know, in God's hands to move in, in literally be used by God to to cause a movement. And so, in this instance, we're talking about these. Um, the Knights Templars in particular, um, and were you surprised? I, I was looking for the the the, the secret cache of uh, treasures, like national treasure. I was looking yeah. for it here, yeah. but um, the 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 way that Rodney Stark gets into the the way in which they grew. I mean, there were some sharp cookies involved in this. Yeah, yeah. I think he even says at one point the Templars were basically the first international banking system in the history of the world. <laughs> And um, I think he says at one point, I didn't make a direct connection if there was one, I didn't observe it, but but how a lot of the original like monarchs would fund their crusades was they would uh, they would mortgage or even sell off uh, their huge tracts of land and who was buying them up, the religious orders. And so if the Knights Templar came out of that, then they were managing these huge tracts of land and had actual cash and outright and and uh, and that continued, you know, through the centuries. And then eventually, I guess they left. But the hospitalers or the Knights of Malta kind of are known for that now. But yeah, they had a re a remarkable business acumen um, in addition to being warriors, uh, actual warriors in battle. Um, and that uh, that was an interesting insight that I had not been really aware of until I read this book. How about you, uh, Father Nagel? I think. It it is interesting. They are the first, you know, bank, et cetera. But that's because just like, again, just like the Cistercians, they ended up having these these religious houses spread throughout Europe. They were doing, they were doing marketing, what we would call marketing, fundraising, uh, recruiting for the Knights Templar. And they were all over England, France, Germany, Italy. So they had all these access points and they were everywhere, just like the Cistercians were. They were truly a religious order in that sense. Again, there's unity of command and communication. And so you had these, this one institution that transcended the Middle East and Western Europe. And so if you wrote a, a, what we might call a check or a deposit in one, one house somewhere in London, it would be the same. You could, you could cash it in in Jerusalem or, you know, again, somewhere on the, the coast there because it's the same group and it's, it's one body uh, in terms of the, the Templars. So, I, and again, I think you'd look at Bernard of Clairvaux. He came from a knightly family. He was, he was one of them. He just happened to have a religious vocation. But he was all in favor of the whole idea of chivalry and knighthood. And so the, 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 the intercultural um, trade, trading back and forth here between the Knights Templar, the Cistercians, or again, uh, civil knights versus you know, these military orders, 
they were all working under the same the same ideology and belief system of Christendom, and so it it, it all jived together that way. And it's yep. the only way it made it, could make it work. Yes. So um, we could uh, talk briefly about the the Knights Hospitallers, has Hospitallers, Knights of Malta. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there, I would just say it's a similar story with them, except that they were mostly focused, I think, on serving the the, the poor and the sick. Well, but they were also fighting and the and the wounded and the wounded yeah the wounded pilgrims and they had a better long they had, I would just simply say though I think we should at least mention that they they did the Templars didn't really have the hospital element to it whereas the Knights uh, of Saint John of, of Jerusalem or hospital they did and the other thing is the the Knights of we call them Knights of Malta because they stayed and fought in the East uh, Mediterranean after the Templars left after the fall of the last holdout uh, fortresses in 1291, it, they went to Rhodes and started, just, they just kept on doing the same thing. They fought uh, the, the Muslims and the Turks there. When they got forced out of Rhodes, they went to Malta and they got attacked there too. But they, they always still had their original uh, reason for being, whereas the Templars, once they got kicked out of the Middle East, what were you gonna do with these guys? They weren't fighting anymore, why give them money? So they yeah, survived. The, and the, the Templars got burned at the stake. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they did. They just disappeared. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to dig into some of these uh, struggles to defend the kingdoms and the way in which that ended up leading to um, the the next, the second crusade and on. And we're going to bring up the figure of Saladin in just a minute on Sound Insight. Sound Insight is grateful for its sponsors. Western Washington Coalition for Life has a mission to end abortion in Washington State through peaceful and prayerful means by being the hands and feet of Christ to everyone entering an abortion facility. WWCFL knows where there is life, there is hope. Engage at WWCFL.org or on Facebook at Western Washington Coalition for Life. Today's sponsor is the Associated Catholic Cemeteries of the Seattle Archdiocese. A Catholic cemetery is the final resting place for members of our faith community on their journey to God. The Archdiocese of Seattle is fortunate to have four Catholic cemeteries serving the burial needs of our faith community. Calvary in Seattle, Holyrood in Shoreline, Gethsemane in Federal Way, and St. Patrick in Kent. For more information about the Catholic cemetery or to answer your questions about cremation, please call 888-784-8683. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. We're talking about Rodney Stark's book, God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades. And um, we've, we've set the stage. It's only taken us half the program to set the stage. So, <laughs> All hey. right, let's take let's. <laughs> Why don't we take a look at how the Second Crusade ended up um, emerging? How does the Second, uh, who's who's involved in helping this Second Stage, the, the Second Crusade, end up um, end up growing? Um, and so I want to bring up the, the character of Saladin here, and the fall of Jerusalem. So Father Nagel, who is Saladin, well, or Saladin? I think Saladin, I he is actually a. Uh, He's a leader of the Muslim forces that starts in Egypt, actually. And he's the one who eventually is able to unite the Muslim forces again. I think you're very correct, Tom, to say the First Crusade worked partially because the Muslim forces were all divided and fighting against themselves. But he, here's a, a finally a, a ruler that is able to unite all the forces surrounding 
um, those kingdoms. And, and once you have unity of command and all those resources coming against these, these small kingdoms and small number of forces, it's really, the pressure gets really bad. And so the, Edessa is the first of the kingdoms to fall, the county of Edessa, and that's what sparks. There's a little, there's a kind of what we call a freak out in, the, in Europe saying, hey, there's an, there's an emergency here. So from that start, the, the second crusade, the call goes out for. Yes. Uh, anything, uh, this is one of those sections, I think, where it, uh, where Stark draws a, a big distinction between the way they glorified Saladin. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it was it was you know pretty hor horrible so yeah. um I, I, go ahead father well i think saladin he's an effective uh monarch uh, muslim monarch but he's not a saint he's not a he's not practicing yeah. chivalry he's acting like an effective islamic leader does um and so he he's different in that way but uh, he's not Again, like the greatest knight, he doesn't outshine in chivalry the knights of, of Europe. He just he has a completely different approach to things. Well, I think that uh, as I re as I recall in this section of the book, why why the the myth of him being this uh, this honorable leader is that he let uh, at the end of the Second Crusade he let the uh, the people in Jerusalem go. Well, you know, we talked a little bit about last time that. You know, his own people said that this is unusual for him and unusual for just their way of doing things. But also, you know, it's like you point out in the last program, Tom, that the it was typical of this kind of warfare that uh, you were you were offered to surrender and then you could go, you lose your city, but you keep your lives. But if you make us fight, you're, it's all over if we win. And uh, and so Edessa and the, these other outposts, um, they chose to fight, and so it was wholesale slaughter when they lost. And then seeing the right. Why did they do that? They did, well, they, that, they did that because you know it the 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 see, the besieging side could potentially lose as much in terms of resources and manpower as the defenders. So it's like if you're going. Sorry, what I meant was why did they end up fighting rather than um, giving uh, making a treaty oh, of I surrender? See. Yeah, and it was because Saladin gave his word. Uh, yeah, right to, yeah, the, that's to right. the knights, and then they came out and they beheaded and the, them. And all. they beheaded them all anyway. And so after that, it was like, well, we know what you're going to do if you. You know, you're not a man of your word, so we are going to fight. And then, um, uh, so anyway, it was wholesale slaughter until Jerusalem, and then it was a turn of events for him. They let them go, and that's what you know. It seems like, you know, the prevailing narrative of history remembers is that well, you see, he was honorable, and the knights would not have done this, but he did. Well, you got to take it in the larger context as usual. So yeah. Well, and then Rodney Stark tosses in his little uh, attack against the uh, the Greek. Uh, residents of Jerusalem that let him in, let mm. Saladin in when he eventually got to Jerusalem. And uh, and in return for their support, Saladin had all the Christian churches in the Holy Land converted from the Latin to the Greek Orthodox Rite, in keeping with the treaty he signed in 1189 with Emperor Isaac. So, um, okay, so let's um, continue. Oh, do you want to uh, do you want to mention Conrad at all? Uh, he, interesting character in the in in the this second. Um, the Second Crusade. I think Conrad, he actually defeats Saladin in a number of battles, and he becomes the king of Jerusalem, although there's no Jerusalem to, to rule over, but he has the title of king. So he, he says, I think his great point, his place is this idea that the kingdom of Jerusalem is going to continue to go on, even though we're not there yet, because it gets really complicated in the Third Crusade, etc. Who Who has the rightful... Uh, who who has the right to be the ruler of Jerusalem? 
and Conrad, because of his his marriage and his his connections, but also because he's successful in war, that they're fighting. He has this authority that. Um, it's just kind of an interesting story. Even when the kings of England and, and, and France come in the Third Crusade, it's Conrad that they, they theoretically they were fighting to put him back on the throne um, because he's a, he is a successful ruler as well. I don't think he's any more. Um, he's, he's not gentle and kind any more than Saladin is, but he's he's a tough, ruthless, effective warrior. And that leads to the Third Crusade. Right. Right? Word of his victory gets back uh, to the West and. Uh, England and France that had been disputing uh, now are like, okay, we should set aside our differences here and we should march. We should go support the defense of Jerusalem. So they muster their uh, armies, uh, armies, their their groups of knights and and I guess a big ragtag bunch of followers. <laughs> and so one yeah. of them is um, is Frederick, right? Frederick so Frederick, and so he, yeah, Barbara Redbeard, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he. Along with um, Richard, the Lionhearted, um, so they end up, um, uh, or Frederick in this one particularly, he heads by land, and makes it to Constantinople, and um, and so they end up letting him go through, right? They end up letting yes. him go by, but then, page two hundred five, it's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this was crazy. Moving on toward Antioch with no substantial forces in his way, Frederick fell from his horse mm -hmm. while fording the Salif River and drowned. Yeah. Mm. What? <laughs> there it is. You know, we mentioned it last time. You got these anonymous figures that changed the course of history and these random accidents that changed the course of history. What happened as a result of that, Father? <clears throat> what did happen? Well, they just, uh, they just, they just disappeared. gave up, I think. They were devastated. Yeah. They're like, that's it. Yeah. He's our fearless leader. He's the guy we're following. He's the uh, guy we've got confidence in. And now he died. And then they go, and then Richard Lionheart is left alone. No, they were supposed yeah. to be a pincher move. Yeah. And they didn't have the pincher. Yes. Yeah. They had one part of it. I just, it was like, what? I, we, again, we don't realize that the, 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 the act of one person, in this instance, an accident, if that had not happened, how would history have been different? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I do think that the interesting thing about Third Crusade is, besides that, what might have been, this is the crusade most people think of when they think of the crusades. Um, that it's Richard the Lionhearted, it's the French king coming in, it's the, the battles around Acre, all the, the literature and the romantic historical novels, et cetera, um, you know, all the Walter Scott novels and all these sort of things, they, they tend to, on, this, is the, this is the English crusade. Um, this is maybe that's why in America at least this is the one that's really seen as um, effective. And again, Richard Lionheart is his counterpoint to Saladin um, in terms of uh, romantic uh, medieval warriors. But this is the one that gets lots of the press uh, in terms of and it's sort of successful, not completely, but it's so again, I think this fits into the popular imagination of what what we think of as crusade. Well, you know, if we know our English mythology, who was Richard the Lionheart's younger brother, was Prince John, and so we had Robin Hood, right? And so, you know, I don't know if those were actual figures, but but that's the larger context of the whole Robin Hood story, is that Richard the Lionheart was gone on the Crusades, and so we have Robin Hood fighting Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham, and, and so on like that. So I, I mean, yeah, I thought, I thought that too, and I said, oh, wait a minute. It was interesting to me reading about these characters. Like, I didn't know that Frederick Barbarossa and Richard Lionheart were contemporaries that were a part of this pincher move. I also didn't know how Frederick Barbarossa died. I thought he died in battle. So that was new to me. But but piecing together these other characters I know from other things in history. Um, and uh, 
uh, was an interesting thing to, you know, for me to learn and, and the role that they played in the specific moment in history. So then this, um, this leads to the fourth crusade, um, which never made it to <laughs> Egypt or the Holy Land. It ends up in Constantinople. Uh, Father, you want to, Father Lou, actually, no, what part gets to break? Uh, when we come back, uh, let's dive into the fourth crusade. Back in, uh, back in a minute. Sound Insight is grateful for its sponsors. Western Washington Coalition for Life has a mission to end abortion in Washington State through peaceful and prayerful means by being the hands and feet of Christ to everyone entering an abortion facility. WWCFL knows where there is life, there is hope. Engage at WWCFL.org or on Facebook at Western Washington Coalition for Life. Today's sponsor is the Associated Catholic Cemeteries of the Seattle Archdiocese. The Archdiocese of Seattle is fortunate to have four Catholic cemeteries in the Puget Sound area serving the burial needs of our faith community. Calvary in Seattle, Holyrood in Shoreline, Gethsemane in Federal Way, and St. Patrick in Kent. Burial in a Catholic cemetery allows you to share your Catholic faith with future generations of your family. For more information, please contact the Association of Catholic Cemeteries at mycatholiccemetery.org. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Carnes. Great to be with you. And uh, today we are talking about the book God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades with Rodney Stark. And uh, we are we're making our way through the crusades here. I'm moving a little more quickly. I think, <laughs> fathers, you might have noticed. Hey, that was a good third crusade. Let's go to the fourth one. <laughs> All right, so the Fourth Crusade, Father uh, Nagel, why don't you give us a little, again, summary of what happened there? Well, this is the one, the crusade, where they're starting to change tactics, thinking, let's go to, let's start hitting Egypt first. And because if, as long as we're going to uh, just go to Jerusalem, which is kind of an out-of-way border for the, the Muslim countries, why don't we go attack the, the head of that empire, that kingdom, so that then if we beat them in Egypt, then Jerusalem will be safe for us. But they never get there. So it's a good plan, but they get down to Constantinople. And I, this is one of the places I did, I did learn a lot in terms of just the, the, the petty back and forth and the betrayals and all the backstabbing that goes along here. And, it, and the Crusaders come across as somewhat as um, kind of clueless people they're being taken advantage of. But eventually, right, they're, they're trying to hop a ride on the Venetian ships and they don't have enough money. And so as part of their payment for their Uber ride down to Egypt, they're going to have to take this, this city on the, the coast of what we would call Dalmatia. And then so they're just being hired out to attack people. And then they get down to Constantinople. That doesn't work. And eventually they, they get angry with, they get involved in the, the politics of the Byzantine Empire. They get used and eventually they turn on, turn on all of them and they, t they take the city pretty easily. And so they don't go to the Muslim lands. They just they just take over Greece, and they say, "Okay, we got land here, and it's just a offer. It's just an opportunity too good to pass up for them." And it's really the the downfall of the Byzantine Empire that had been around since the time of the Caesars. This is they, they would come back for a couple of centuries in a really weakened form, but the sack of Constantinople in 1204, the true empire there is it's it's just destroyed, and so that's why the Greeks hate. The, the crusader idea so much that they they really did they took Constantinople when nobody else could have up until the, you know for eight hundred years. 
on the role of the Venetian fleet was it was interesting too. It's like they're they're just kind of a, a a backdrop, but it's like you know they hired these guys to be mercenaries to take back some islands or whatever that the Byzantines took from them. And once that was accomplished, like hey, thanks for doing that. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> so they were, where's all my money? Where's, yeah. where's my loot? <laughs> yeah. And then the Crusaders like wait wait a minute, this is not part of the deal. So mm-hmm. the Venetians don't come across as uh, you know the good guys and all this either, but. It's, it's that human like, nature thing. The there's no, there are about. no good guys. <laughs> there are no good guys. <laughs> so Pope Innocent III hears about this and is like, all right, wait a minute. This is not what I had in mind. It had in mind. Let's go. There has to be a fifth crusade. Yep. And so now there are crusades against Egypt. And again, oh my goodness. it You talk about unintelligent people in put in charge, this Cardinal Pelagius of Albano. Who put this guy in charge? Just terrible. So... Anyways, this I, is the yes, France. This is France of Assisi's crusade. You remember this oh, is really? of France of Assisi. He, he goes to Egypt and he dances in front of the Sultan. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of those? That this is yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the crusade he goes on, trying to be martyred and yeah. it didn't work. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I just thought about like you, you know, there's a person who um, you know, this is an unnamed person on 222. Um, here they are. The Crusaders are trying to get in, right? And so they're stuck. Uh, so they're trying to attack across the Nile, and. At the end of the uh, at the end of August, at the it says uh, the Crusaders lashed two large ships together, and on this base constructed a miniature castle from which they extended a massive ramp. The Crusaders sailed this contraption against the tower in the Nile. Troopers stormed over the ramp, forced the garrison to surrender, and then cut the massive chain blocking the passage up the Nile. It was a remarkable achievement in all respects. Who came up with that idea? Yeah, I want to know. They're sitting around on the ship, thinking, "How do we get you know past this big chain that's stopping us?" I get it. Let's tie together two huge ships and put together a, a up top a kind of you know transport. Uh, uh, what's it called? A, like a a ramp. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Or they're like, that's just crazy enough to work. Yeah. <laughs> and then they then they pulled it off. Yeah. I just think that's so fascinating. Yeah. So. <laughs> but you're right about the the Cardinal Pelagius. Like this guy apparently fancies himself as this brilliant military leader and is met with defeat after defeat, and he doesn't have the the humility or the or the prudence to to hand the reins over to someone else until it's utterly over, or knowing how to negotiate right. surrenders, mm-hmm. right? And so, just it ends up white, you know, slowly wearing down and eventually wiping out the his own force. Mm-hmm. And so, that until they have to, that, see how quickly I did that. <laughs> you know, and then it, we have Saint Louis. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I felt bad. I I was like, oh wow. I love the 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 name of this heading of the chapter, Saint Louis. Magnificent failure. Yeah, they set it up well, and I think in this part that okay, we know what doesn't work. Let's take our time to really plan well, and not just the de you know the details of who we're going to bring and how we're going to get there, but the time of year to get there and all this other stuff. So everything was like perfectly planned, and it still failed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, you know, anyway, that that was remarkable to me. That you know, here's here's another character that Rodney Stark holds up as. uh, a figure of um, of uh, admiration, and um, you know, but uh, you know, it's like the best laid plans of mice and men. It still was a failure, partially just because of his own death. I mean, he he got sick and he died. Um, who you and like Frederick Barbarossa, the leader goes, "What's going to happen?" You know, it's, it's they they go home. Yeah. Well, then you have another unifying Muslim leader, Baibar, mm-hmm. or. Yeah. And he ends up uh, one after the other, you know, knocking down these different kingdoms, and again with with some brutality. Yeah. Um, which 
and then it causes a again a response on the part of Saint uh, Saint Louis Saint Louis uh, to to do something about this, but um, unfortunately, sort of too little, too late, and um, and he ends up just kind of making his way through um, the 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 various uh, um, uh, strongholds until the the final one was in um, was it Tyre Acre 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 yeah in Acre the the final one. And um, and that was in what twelve seventy twelve ninety one oh twelve ninety one yeah so um, now we're at the I, I went really fast there because we have two minutes left so mission <laughs> abandoned is yeah. the last chapter uh, father do you, I'll give you a chance to we'll give you the uh, the uh, the primary use of this time father Nagel I just think that it's first off before he leaves out the whole Mo- mongol invasion destroying the the muslim forces in the 1260s and 70s he doesn't even mention but regards of that um i just think the idea these crusades is so different from us sometimes people think okay we we want to we don't want to we don't want to push up and and, and highlight the crusades because we don't want to go back there sure we don't i i agree um, but it just struck me there's no way this could happen because there's no Christendom that would launch a crusade. This, these are things that are born out of a whole entire society whose all economic, military, and political forces can be directed towards these sort of faith-based goals, which is simply impossible these days. It just doesn't, there's no one, there's no state that could ever do it. So it just how far we are from this and not to think of this in terms, sure, we don't want to um, use military force to coerce other people's mil- uh, religious convictions and consciences that's okay fine that's not really what the crusades are about they never, there wasn't a sense of con- forcing conversion but just what a strange and distant world this was compared to what we're facing today which is the very opposite of christendom but lewis you have one minute well um yeah it, it's a completely different world and 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 another eye opener for me was that uh, I mean there was maybe some forced conversions on the part of the Muslims, but but not as much as I would have thought that Ronnie Stark mentioned that when when the cities were taken over, like you know Saladin converted the Latin churches to Greek churches, and then but they were still churches, and and uh, you know they were probably heavily taxed and all the rest of it, but but um, you know he didn't he didn't mention that as much as I thought he would if that were a larger thing. So uh, it was it was. Um, it was a, an ugly series of battles, but for the Christians, it was to provide safe passage for us to be able to go venerate the sites of the life of Christ, and um, and they were and they were not being uh, honored and protected. So we, you know, Europe had to go do it for them. Yeah, just my final word. I, these books, I, I love books like this. You know, they're they're thoughtful. They make a case, but they're sober. Not perfect, but provide lots of great clarifying information. This is a kind of a book of apologetics, if you will, that is, um, it, it lays groundwork. It lays the groundwork for so much good. So, well, that's Rodney Stark's book. Thank you, fathers, for joining me today on the program. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight. Sound Insight's primary sponsors are Burien Chevrolet and Burien Toyota. We'd like to thank Catholic business owner Dean Anderson for supporting Sound Insight. Burien Chevrolet and Burien Toyota are located off First Avenue South in downtown Burien, and all inventory of new and pre-owned vehicles are featured online at BurienToyota.com and BurienChevrolet.com. Find new roads.
Thanks again for listening to Sound Insight, and may God bless your day.